The Inspector General community is taking a closer look at diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility trends in their own offices. The Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, SIGI, created a DEIA working group in 2020. Many IGs have expressed interest. For what the working group is looking at to advance diversity, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with Education IG and Working Group Chairwoman Sandra Bruce and with FDIC IG Jay Lerner, who's the group's vice chairman. You'll hear Bruce first. At the time when we kicked it off, it was about 30 of us, and now it's over 50% of the IGs who are involved in the work group. I was asked to be the chair, and quite naturally, I asked Jay Lerner to be the vice chair because Jay is amazing to work with. And then Jay and I, along with the chair and vice chair of SIGI, developed these focus areas that we have been focusing on that have also been incorporated into the roadmap and the compendium. But the reason that we thought that these focus areas were really important because four of them dealt with the life cycle management of people. And then the other two are about our business operations. You know, with the life cycle of people, it's really all about hiring, staffing, recruiting, retaining, developing, and all that good stuff. And then with our stakeholders and partners, we want to make sure that we're providing a complete picture of what that would look like. Not just that there are programs out there, but show how that's actually taking place. Just standing up the committee and the working groups itself was a bit of an accomplishment uh, early on. We've also had a data collection within the IG community, a survey that we'll do on an annual basis, uh, both demographic numbers as, as well as every other year we'll be looking for employee input and narrative information about how employees feel with respect to DEIA efforts. I want to talk more specifically about the compendium. That was something that you just recently published, and it compiles different DEIA-related reports across IG offices. Were there some notable themes that you found when you were putting it together, and is that something that you're continuing to develop and add to going forward? To remind everyone, this is something that we're already doing. We just need to think about it just slightly different to make sure that we're showing that complete picture. So when we first pulled the compendium together, this was just really to increase awareness about what's available and what's out there to kind of help other IGs come up with project ideas. Like here are some examples of projects that are already out there. And then the thing that's not mentioned in the compendium, but that it's something that we actually have to think about as inspectors general, is even when you're doing investigations, you you know, when you go out and let's say you want to arrest someone, you have to think about how that person is going to self-identify. That's going to dictate how you use certain processes. So all this was actually part of what we were thinking when we put the compendium together. And then we, this was like our initial snapshot. And now it is up to the respective IGs to make sure that we're keeping this compendium going. And is there some way that you're trying to measure IG Office's success with that? Do you have some sort of deadline in mind or maybe a time frame for when you're trying to get some of these things done? For me, when I think about the measure of success, I mean, we've grown to a very large group. We're, we're reaching people. We're hearing people talk about DEIA during their planning work, at least at Ed OIG. My, my audit staff is talking about it during their planning meetings when they're thinking about workloads. And the only way that we can really measure that as a community is through our our surveys, right? That's going to kind of give us a lens as to how the community is working or advancing its DEIA competence. 
the compendium is both sort of for internal purposes and external purposes, if you will. The external is really to highlight the great work of the IG community, and the compendium goes back to about 2014, so the last seven or eight years. And then as reports are produced going forward into the future, um, on our oversight.gov, there's a tag for DEIA reports, and so that'll continue into the future. I think the internal benefits of this are great as well in terms of learning from each other within the IG community. And let's dive a little bit more into the internal piece of this. That's something that's mentioned within the DEIA roadmap, specifically with recruitment, hiring, and retaining employees. What do you see as the role of DEIA there, and what recommendations or improvements are you looking for in that area for the internal IG community? You know, the IG community comprises small, medium, and large IGs, so of course size is going to dictate how sophisticated you can be with um, advancing DEIA. So internally, some IG shops have taken a particular section of the roadmap, like staffing, hiring, recruitment, and working on that. Others are looking at it in totality. But within that, it's all we at least gave somewhat of a recipe, whether you be small, medium, or large, that you can actually use to say, here's how I'm going to recruit, or here's how I'm going to staff, or I'm going to do an assessment of my staffing and recruitment to see where my gaps are. While people may not necessarily have the resources to do everything that's included in the roadmap, they'll be able to take specific sections or, like I said, in its totality to do that. And something else in the roadmap that I was interested in was the piece about promotions and professional development and the role of DEIA in those. That's something where even if you have DEIA in your organization at the higher or more senior levels, it's often something that tends to drop off for agencies. So what are some of the strategies that you have for that particular piece of it that's in the roadmap? At the higher level, it really is about accountability, making sure that it's written in performance plans so that there could be some level of accountability. And then if that accountability is there, when you're doing your gap analysis, when you're looking at promotions, professional development, you're seeing who's getting opportunities, who's getting promoted, how frequently are they getting promoted. Data is the other most important factor that's going to help us identify those areas where we need to make improvements. It's really, I think, boils down to the data collection to see where you currently are. And, and for all of us, it's a learning and, and growth experience. And so wherever we are, for each individual Office of Inspector General, wherever we are, there's always room for improvement. And I think having the data is really key. You've also called this roadmap a living document and something that's not really complete. Can you talk more about what exactly that means and what could have the potential to change within this roadmap? One uh, specific thing that we are going to add to the roadmap is information on accessibility in our safer workplaces. Education Department Inspector General Sandra Bruce and FDIC Inspector General Jay Lerner, the two leads for the Council of Inspectors General Diversity Working Group, they were speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad 
was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. 
I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.